I'll be reading from Luke chapter 22, verse 14 to 20. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. I can't imagine a father suffering the way you did when the Lord Jesus suffered the way he did. Help us to understand all that you've done and, and get a little bit more. And I know for all of eternity, we'll always be getting more. Thank you, and it's in your Son we praise you. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I'm glad to sort of see you. I've got my medium range glasses on here, so you're a little bit blurry, but that's okay. If you frown at me, I won't know it till later. Um, we just went through 1 Corinthians 11 recently with Tom. Well, maybe not that recently, but fairly recently. So you might wonder, how did we end up up here talking about the Lord's Supper again? Because that is where he preached was one of the major four major texts in the New Testament about the Lord's Supper. A little while back, I got a call from Phil Borat, and he said, hey, we're starting over. We have a seven-year program that takes everybody that's uh, in sixth grade through twelfth grade through the entire Bible. And we're starting over, and I would like you to do two messages on the Lord's Supper. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, you're not starting in Genesis. You're going through the whole Bible, but he started with the Lord's Supper. So it's significant. It's something that you see. You see the elements sitting here in front of me uh, on the table. And it's significant in our church. We take it every week. And so, you know, these were kids, you know, starting in the sixth grade. If you happen to be there, you, you started on the, at the beginning. If you happen to be in, you know, the 12th grade this year, you'd get the first, you'd get the first year and then, uh, you know, that'd be, then you'd be out the door into the adult teaching. But uh, the kids in sixth grade were starting with the Lord's Supper. So we thought about that. And there's a, you know, we probably have an intent to have Tom in the pulpit, you know, two-thirds to three-fourths of the time. And different men speak at different times. And it gets, gives Tom a little break, and it also gets to uh, bring in some other people and to bring uh, out some other topical kinds of things that are maybe not as long as a full series. So this is a strange thing to do in a single message because it's so big, and you really feel the weight of that when you're uh, putting your message together. On our Wednesday morning call, one of the things I realized is an awful lot of stuff has to hit the cutting room floor. <laughs> and it did. So you have to make some choices about what you're going to cover. But my intent today is uh, in some ways driven by people that are new to our church, people that haven't seen what we do. Um, I was here, for example, for probably five years before I realized that the men who get up and 
pray for the elements weren't chosen beforehand. They were just believing men in the body, and the Lord moved, and they got up and they prayed for the elements. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that people don't know. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with uh, just a little, a little history and a little information on how we do that here at CBC. So if it's unfamiliar to you, this is just some information about what you see going on up here during uh, our typical Lord's Supper remembrance. Now, we were planted many years ago out of a church called Believer's Chapel. So this will kind of give you an idea of how central this is to us. At our mother church, Believer's Chapel, every Sunday morning, they had a teaching service like you hear Tom do, and they had Sunday school. But you went home, and you had to come back Sunday night if you wanted to do this. They didn't take an offering on Sunday mornings. You couldn't, I suppose you could have given in some fashion if you had needed to find another way, but they didn't pass the plate. Um, they said, this is the meeting of the church where we take the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. That's the meeting of the church. We call it the worship service or the communion service, and uh, that's, that's our legacy, and that's how we see this. So we do it every week, and you see people get up and they love it, and they're not tired of it because of what it represents. The answer to why this remembrance is such a big deal is not a small question. And we're going to flesh that out for the rest of our lives and for eternity. But I hope today, if you're newer to this service, that you're going to appreciate a little more fully in some aspects what we're doing here and why it's so important to us. So after we explain what's going on here physically, I'm going to take you to a couple of texts, tell you where they are where this comes from in the New Testament. We didn't just, this is not something we just made up. It's like, well, here's a neat way to remember Jesus. Hmm, you know what, we'll tie this bread to his body. We'll tie this, in our case, grape juice to his blood, and we'll talk about him. That's not what we're doing. You know, as, as you heard Jonathan read that text from Luke 22 this morning, um, these are instructions that we got from the Lord Jesus himself. So that's why we remember it. Um, so a lot of you are gonna find this a pretty basic review but people who are new to us are moving up from the children's programs um, who maybe they're young adults in here that have come out. You know, you think about, well, they've been in our children's programs for seven years. Well, hey, maybe they were a believer last year and it went right over their head because they didn't know the Lord and now they hear. Though I don't think many of you look like kids. So <laughs> I guess I've had my shot there in the high school. There's one thing I want to add, though, here before we jump in. There's other names for the Lord's Supper. You hear us here talking about it when we call it the Lord's Supper generally. Um, there's names that are used in different churches. So maybe you came in from somewhere else and some different denominations use some different names. But you'll hear us call it the Lord's Supper, maybe the Lord's Table, maybe the Remembrance Service, Communion, Holy Communion. Um, and Anglicans and Presbyterians and some of the other higher church guys may, may call it uh, the Eucharist. That's probably more common in the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, so that may be a name you've heard. Now, the Roman Catholics mean something different by this than we do, and I'll make a brief comment on that later on. But you probably won't hear the name the Eucharist as much in a Protestant church as you would in, uh, in an Orthodox or a Catholic church. So what are we doing physically? So what you see physically here on a Sunday morning, um, you'll see a man come up here to open the service. That guy is picked out beforehand, and he's got a plan, and he's got a text, and you'll see that text in the bulletin, and he's coming up here, and he's got a theme, 
and he's starting the service. And he asks, and we ask the men who are going to get up and speak to consider that theme and to maybe speak along the lines of that theme, to share with the body, to help develop that theme. That guy is planned. But the rest of the people that get up and speak are not planned. We don't know who's going to get up and what they're going to say. The Lord knows. So some of you guys who are from a brethren background, you know, this is a familiar thing. Some of you who are not, well, I have to warn you. <laughs> Sometimes things can get strange. You don't know what's going to happen. Now, they usually don't. But, you know, if you ask anybody who's been in this kind of a service for a very long time, there'll be a few stories. There'll be a few stories. So <laughs> I might have been guilty of uh, being part of those stories before. Um, you see men rather than women do this. And this is because of texts in 1 Timothy 2, 12, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, as well as the examples we see in Scripture. This is a place where men are told to lead and men are told to speak in the meeting of the church. So the opener generally prays, sits back down after his opening remarks, and uh, he usually doesn't get back up until the end of the service. Maybe he will if, if things need to, if things are kind of going off the rails or the schedules, you know, we're really missing the schedule. But generally, you won't see the opener get back up. He may, uh, at the end, pray, share a scripture, may do some announcements, but that's probably the, that's the end of the role for the opener. So the men who get up um, and speak and share scriptures and things like that are not chosen beforehand, so we're trusting God to do that. Does that, does that scare you? Anybody scared by the idea of trusting God? Not everybody likes the open meeting, by the way. You know, we've, we've over the years had critiques of it because things get weird and go wrong on occasion. So um, it's worth, worth uh, keeping in mind, but don't be afraid. I, I uh, am so often find myself up here, not up here, but down there rejoicing in what has been said. And uh, I think if you come with the attitude of I'm looking for God to move and I'm looking excitedly to see how he's going to move today, uh, you will be blessed in that. So it's worth keeping in mind there are things that we do that are our traditions, and there are things that we do that are really mandated by the Lord. If you look back at that text in Luke 22, um, 20, if you want to keep a finger in there while we're reading, 22:14 is where that starts. There's very little said. The instruction for doing this remembrance is very, very brief. For example, could you look at that text and say, hmm, shall we share all in one cup, or shall we have these little cups? Or what about the little, uh, you know, the little COVID cups with their the pre-packed stuff, porta porta packs? There's not uh, an instruction on that. There are principles that we try to follow, you know, and we think one of the big principles is unity, togetherness in the body, and we'll talk more about that. But there's an awful lot of things that we do that are simply our traditions. The Bread in the cup that you see here, the instructions given to, are given to us in a few places, and they're all very brief. So when we take the bread in the cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death again until he comes. We're remembering him again until he comes. So when we do that, here's a question for you, if you're, especially for you men out there. Should I get up and speak on any given Sunday? That's a good question. That's, uh, you'll, you'll see people, I'm probably one of the more guilty ones of getting up maybe more often than I should. Um, it's always a good question. It's not really our topic today, but I'll, I will tell you just a brief testimony because it might be helpful to some of you. 
there's rarely a Sunday that goes by that I don't feel the urge. You know, there's something that gives me joy, and I, I want to get up and share that with you. And that may well be the Spirit moving. But even still, it doesn't mean that is the best thing he will do for the body. So if I look at it and go, you know what, they've heard enough from me. Um, I'm just going to stay in my seat. And instead of me getting up, I'll, I'll rejoice and praise the Lord privately. But I'll pray, and here's what I pray, Lord, bring the church something better. And he does. He continually does that. Now, if you want to come up to tell me later... Or throw a tomato now and say, yeah, you do get up too often. <laughs> you can come and tell me that, and that will not hurt my feelings, and it might do me good. But uh, most of the time, I sit in my chair, and I pray, and I ask God to bring something better for the church. So I can sit in my seat comfortably, not afraid, oh, you know, is, are they going to get what God has given me? I don't have to. He'll overcome my fear on the day he wants me up there. Or not my fear, but you know what I mean, my my uh, desire to see something better. Sometimes he may say, no, it's you today. How do I know that? I don't know, but you end up seeing me up here and hopefully I'm reading it right. So back to what we're doing. The first thing we do is the bread. We take the bread. The opener makes his remarks. Then some, sometimes shortly thereafter, someone will get up and pray for the bread. One of the men will come up and inside this white napkin that you see up here, there are some wafers. It's unleavened crackers. And you'll hear that guy, and he breaks that, breaks that bread that's sitting on top of this tray. And he'll pour it into that top tray, and the other trays are already filled. And the ushers will come up, and they generally know, you know, I need two plates over here, one for the middle and two over here. And he'll pass those out, and they'll pass it around. And we, it's a tradition, again, a tradition, not required by scriptures, that we hold that bread, and we wait. And then someone will pray, usually the guy who got up to pass the bread, and then we'll take it together. Um, we have plates and cups upstairs, and when we get past our, you know, we get past the season of COVID here, you'll see that same protocol goes on upstairs. It's, I've been an usher upstairs for a very long time. It's, got, it's been very easy during COVID <laughs> because there are no ushers upstairs. Um, so it's simple. But if you haven't seen it before, it's good to know what's going on. So after we pray for the bread, and this is in the same order that it is in the accounts given in Scripture, we will, uh, maybe somebody else will pray, or maybe we'll sing a song, but then some man in the body will get up, and he will pray for the cup. There will be some remarks made, or just a prayer, or a reading of a Scripture, and then the ushers will come forward uh, again and pass that out. These remarks are usually focused on the blood of Christ, just like with the, the bread. They're usually focused on the body of Christ, but not always. And then we'll pass the cup and we'll ask, it, like we do with the bread, that everybody who trusts in Christ alone as their Savior or their sins take a cup and hold it until everybody's been served. And then the ushers will come back with the trays and the guy will get up and pray and then we'll take that. And, and you might wonder, um, you've been, probably a lot of you have been to a lot of different churches and some use wine and some use grape juice. Here, it is grape juice. It could be wine. You know, it doesn't specifically mention the fermentation state and we are certainly not against wine that's not why we do it it's a it's probably a legacy and i've heard some comments about well what if a guy's struggling with alcoholism and you put wine in front of him yeah that's a that's a that's a real and a fair concern could it be wine i've been to churches where there was grape juice in one part of the plate and wine in another and um 
you know, the wine was always gone first. I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> but um, anyway, it's, uh, it's all grape juice here, so it's not fermented. I guess if we let it age for a few weeks, it might, it might be wine. If it's ever wine here, you'll know one of our, somebody in one of our ministries has been out sick. <laughs> and it's turned into wine. So the rest of the service, there's other things we do. And I thought it was probably worth noting uh, that, it, that that is not what we talk about and we call the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is this and this, the bread and the cup. It's not taking the offering. You might hear this called the remembrance service or the Lord's Supper service or things like that. But in the context today, I'm speaking real specifically about the thing that Jesus instituted and I'm calling it the Lord's Supper. And that's taking this and taking this to remember him and to proclaim his death until he comes. So that's just a good thing to have in the back of your mind as we're talking through this. So other things that we do that are our traditions, the little cups versus a single shared cup. You could probably think of a lot of others. These were ones that came to me. Waiting for a prayer and taking it together. You know, things that you see us do all the time. These are just our traditions. You've got to, but you've got to have something. You've got to make some choice, or you could do it randomly every weekend, um, and that that would be okay too, I suppose. But it's, but again, it's not prescribed. Um, we have a little cracker instead of a big loaf that we break it all off. You know, we could do the, the thing that you see in Catholic or Orthodox churches where we all come down front and take off a single loaf and share from a single cup. That's fine too. Uh, but it, as you see, it's not prescribed. So think about all the things that you see and that we do and how many of them are actually we're told to do versus, well, we had to do it in some way and here's how we chose to do it. So there's a, there's a good bit of liberty, but in the things that are prescribed, we want to do those. Probably a lot of others we don't even think about. So as a side note, uh, it's, it's good to remember that those cups and that bread, like so many things at the church, these things don't fill themselves. Somebody does that. And you probably don't know who it is, but it's the same people have been doing these things for many, many a year, and they'll add new people to their number on occasion. You know, if you, anything that you see that goes on at the church, you know, look at these poinsettias, they appeared. <laughs> the brownies, have you read the brownies' good works? This little children's book. You know, the brownies didn't bring those up, little magical creatures. Somebody did. You know, all these things that happen, they're done by people. So when you see those things, you can always think to yourself, hmm, I wonder who does that. I wonder how that got there. Why is that clean and not dirty? Why is this here and the table is not empty? You know, there's always someone doing those. And if you ever want to know and you see something and you look at it and go, hey, maybe I could help with that. Well, you can ask me or ask, you know, just about anybody. And anybody here can, can tell you somebody if they don't know the answer. They'll know where to point you. And uh, you can get engaged and help. Lots of things take place behind the scenes. Okay, now this is, you know, kind of the end of the what is happening physically on Sunday mornings that you can see. Let's, let's shift over and talk about where we got the instructions. So again... For a lot of you, this will be review, but you'll pick up something, and that's great. We review a lot in the church because we're forgetful people. There are four major texts that talk about the Lord's Supper. There are three that are in the Gospels, and specifically, they are the ones that we call the Synoptic Gospels, the shorter ones that are kind of with the same view. Uh, well, they're not that short. Matthew's not that short, but uh, neither's Luke. But um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they all kind of come from the same viewpoint, so they call them synoptic gospels. 
They have the story. We read the one in Luke. Matthew 26 has another one. Mark 14 has another one. And then the one that Tom just preached on that we'll mention here in a second is 1 Corinthians 11. So this is from the Apostle Paul. He wasn't there when it happened, but he saw Jesus and Jesus taught him. So he got his gospel straight from Christ. And the other, he said that he, it was confirmed by miracles and the other apostles believed it and they extended to him the right hand of fellowship. So that is another, as the fourth reliable account of how this was instituted. And they're all pretty much the same. You know, they're, they're all, uh, you could get the order of the service from those things. You could get the things that Jesus commanded from those things. And there's some minor differences and that are, that are interesting because since the, the Bible is the inspired word of God, we can take, I'll, I'm going to use a little computer science term, we can take the union of the sets. We can put them all together and make a fuller picture instead of saying, well, this guy mentioned this and he didn't. So which one of them's wrong? Doesn't work like that. It's the union of those things. So, um, we, we'll look at uh, Paul's 1 Corinthians text here in just a minute. So three in the synoptics, one in 1 Corinthians. Um, you could understand our basic model from any of them. So let me, uh, let me read just briefly um, our passage again because now we're into, into where we received it. So I'm going to go back to our text. This is Luke 22. When the hour had come... He reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So that's our text. Keep a finger there, and let's make some observations. You can't do justice. As I was sitting here thinking about it this morning and listening to the service, this represents the gospel, how we're saved. It tells us, how bad was my sin? Oh, he, someone had to die? I haven't done a lot of things in my life where you know, I made a mistake and someone else suffered the consequences, and the consequence was death, okay? This is that kind of a thing, except we've all made the mistakes many, many times, and we were born in that condition, and the one who had to die to get us out of it was the son of the living God. So one of the things that this tells us is how bad the problem was, is. So there's a lot of things like that you could think about with communion. And I encourage you, as I, I was really doing this as I was getting ready for this message, I'd read one thing and then another and then another, and the ties are so rich and deep to this service. Uh, I would encourage you to just give thought to that as you partake in this every week and think about why it's so important that we do this every week. I've been here since 1994, and every week we do this same thing, and it never gets tiring. In fact, the better you know 
him, the more you love it. And if I left and I moved to another town, there's not a lot of churches that take communion every week. I would miss that. And, you know, I'm not saying somebody's wrong if they take it less often. Um, I think we'll, we'll talk about this in a minute. We're supposed to take it often, but um, I don't know how I'd survive very well without doing it very, very regularly. So um, let's, let's consider how it was instituted. It was a Passover meal. You guys are familiar with the Passover. So on our, on our Wednesday morning call, I did a little quick history of here's the creation of the world and here's, how we, here's where you go to get to Passover. I did that with the kids upstairs. You know, it kind of told them the story of all this stuff that happened, the very, very short version. And uh, Jim uh, said, Jimmy said, land the plane. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I'm up here, you know, bumping into lots of things in the clouds. I got to get on the ground. So I'm not going to do that with y'all. But uh, it, was, it was very good advice, and you'll benefit from it. So the last of the ten plagues, Moses was in Egypt with the people of Israel, his brethren. He'd been raised in Pharaoh's house, but he came over back to his people. And God had told him, hey, I want my people to go out and worship me, and you go and tell Pharaoh to let them go, and he didn't do it. And so they had 10 plagues, and the last of those plagues, he kept having bad, unbelievable, miraculous plagues, and he wouldn't let the people go. Start to let him go, change his mind, that kind of thing. So the last plague was the death of the firstborn, and that's firstborn of people, and firstborn of cattle. And I was thinking about this, and somebody just feel free to yell out and correct me here. I, was, I always had in my mind firstborn son. It really just says firstborn. Um, and I was looking around thinking about that, and I'm like, this is firstborn. There were, there were daughters dying too. And daughters of cattle and animals were dying. So that, that's in Exodus 11. And in Exodus 12, you know, so remember that the angel of death was going to pass over Egypt. And God said, hey, slay a lamb and take its blood and put it in a bowl and take some hyssop and take that and brush that blood. So he's telling this to his people, the Israelites, not to the Egyptians. He said, brush that blood on the doorposts and the lintel, the thing that goes across the top of the door. And when, the angel see, when I see that blood, the angel of death will not come into that house and slay the firstborn. So... You know, everybody here either was a firstborn, you, you've got a firstborn sibling, you've got children, and there's a firstborn. You can imagine the wailing that went up that night in Egypt. And you can imagine the real sense. I mean, that's, that's terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. I've seen some movie depictions of that, and it is a frightening, frightening scene. So these people were instructed to remember that, how God had passed over them. So for people steeped, and that's in Exodus 11, Exodus 12, if you want to go read about that. And people steeped in the history of Israel, as Jesus' apostles were, it would be very, very full of meaning to hear about the Lamb of God, and now you're taking Passover, the Passover meal, with the one who's called the Lamb of God. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, in 1 Corinthians verse 7 Paul makes this tie he says Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed so and I was thinking about that and I thought you know this is this is so my firstborn is Nathan sitting there and uh, if you saved Nathan 
I'd be very, very thankful. But he saved us all who, who know him, who are in Christ. He saved us all. So it just gets better and better when you think about what Jesus did. He's more, he's more than a temporary annual covering for sins. Um, he's more than the salvation of the firstborn. He'll make you all like his firstborn. His son, the only begotten, will be like him because we'll see him as he is. You can read in 1 John. That's incredible. So what we see in Christ taking the Passover meal was our Lord celebrating a work that he himself would finish as our Passover lamb who takes away our sin. In every way, he is the perfect sacrifice. I thought it was also worth mentioning the fact that we do this so frequently. Why do we do it that frequently? Does the Bible tell us anything that would lead us? It doesn't say we have to do it every week. But there's a number of things that I think argue for that, and let me share some of them with you. And if you've joined CBC from another place, this is probably one of our things that's a little bit odd, that we do this every week and it's so central. You could look at this and say, well, it was instituted during the Passover. Maybe it's like the Passover. How often would we celebrate it then? Once a year. <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> I can't go that long. Um, anyway, it's like joining the Merchant Marine and you're, you're off away from the Lord's Supper. Here's Paul's description. Remember I said there were, there were four accounts, three in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one in 1 Corinthians from Paul. Here's Paul's. Think about how often you might want to celebrate it when you read this. I'm in 1 Corinthians 11, I'm starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaimed it, done. See you, see you next uh, November, the whatever. No way. No way. That's not often enough. <laughs> you know, you hear Paul say, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. You know, I think that's a, that is some direction on frequency. And, it's, it, and a year just, you know, that's not going to do it. <laughs> it's too great. It's too central. What did the earliest church do? Let's look at Acts 2.42. My ministry group used to be named Acts 2.42. This was right after, so the start of the book of Acts. Jesus speaks a little bit at the start of the book of Acts, and then we're off into the life of the early church. So this is right after the coming of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit came. That was essentially the birth of the church. And here's what it says in Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So that's pretty often. I mean, I'll, I'll pray next year. I'll break the bread next year. I'll get a sermon next year. You know, none of that. No, this is all much more often than that. Um, so that argues for a regularity. And then Bob mentioned this on our Wednesday morning call. Uh, I'm thankful for those Wednesday morning calls, and you would be too if you were standing here doing this. <laughs> Lots of help there. Um, 
So Bob mentioned, remember, these guys were coming out of the Mosaic Covenant. They lived under the law of Moses, the apostles. We think of, a lot of times, of, we think of, okay, here's the guys in the Old Testament, and here's the guys in the New Testament. Well, the people walking around in the, that you hear their stories in the gospel, including Jesus, these were men of the Old Testament. Christ hadn't died yet. They were still under the law. That This is really... I wouldn't quite say it this way, but it's almost, you know, the Gospels are almost the end of the Old Testament. You know, that's, it's not the way you normally think of it but, it, but it is. It's the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant had a sign, and that sign was the Sabbath. And they, they rested every week on the last day of the week, the seventh day. So they were coming off of this covenant with a sign that was a weekly sign, and now we have this sign of the New Covenant. This is the New Covenant in my blood. They have this sign. Taking it weekly might make sense to them. And then lastly, and this may be the, the most um, authoritative sort of example that will give us some instruction, you can see the practice of the early church, that it, that it placed it with the meeting of the church on the first day of the week. And this is Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread... They gathered together to break bread. Acts 27, by the way. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, that's another example, and I am going to follow that. <laughs> now, you'll see my watch is up here, so I'm aware. I know how much trouble I'm in. Uh, so, it was weekly. They were doing it weekly. And I'm sure they had... They probably had even more joy than we did. I mean, these people were like, what shall I do to be saved? You know, guys that have been saved for a long time, well, don't lose your joy. Be like that guy that walks in off the street. I'm doomed. What shall I do to be saved? Ah, there's a way. Here it is. Okay. Here's another interesting point. So these, there's so many things that could be said, but this is an interesting one. It is strange and offensive to the unsaved. So at our dear Charlene's funeral, we sang a song that is called, I am the bread of life. Now, let me read you something pretty gross and offensive. The song, it's really reading from John chapter 6. Here's what the song says. Unless, and think about setting this to music. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood and drink of his blood, you shall not have life within you. Here's how Jesus said that. That's the song. I am the living, this is John 6, starting in 51. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus, remember he had just fed these big crowds, right? So, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, can you imagine being in that crowd? And here's this guy, and he says, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's probably not kosher. Um, <laughs> would you have run off? You know, I, I believe that I would have run off 
had the Lord not changed me, I think the people that stayed did so for the same reason that you stay and that I stay. Here's what Jesus said later in John 6. For this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of this uh, statement he made about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So it is a miracle that this doesn't offend you, that instead you love it. Because, hey, this is very strange. This is very offensive to the world unless God has moved in your heart. But we have a revealed faith. We didn't just figure this out. I would not have just figured this out. I'm going to eat somebody's flesh and drink his blood. That'll be a good, I'll, I'll get some followers with that, some compatriots. No, that's disgusting unless you see what it is. And God has revealed that to you. But if we don't do it, we have no life in us. And if we do it, we have eternal life. Paul says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So they don't get it, but those who are in Christ do get it. To the believer, it's life in Christ. And here's another thing. It symbolizes unity of the body with each other and with Christ. Now I'm watching my clock, so I'm just going to read a passage here. Um, I'm going to read some things, starting in John chapter 13. I'm just going to pull some verses. This is John 13 through John 17. That's, that's when John describes the events that happened at the Last Supper. He doesn't record the institution of this, but he talks about the meal and what's going on around it. I'm not even going to call out the verse numbers. I'm just going to read. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your... And think about unity. Think of how we all meet together in Christ. We meet in Christ. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave to you an example that you also should do as I did to you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Remember, unity. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. This I command you, that you love one another. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, 
and they them, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Hey, that's us, isn't it? That they may be, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. See all the unity? Look at that, what Jesus said during that Last Supper. Think about how important it was to him that we as his church be united. How strange it is. We remember a brutal death and it's our greatest joy. And lastly, it is a finished work of Christ that we proclaim. This is where we differ say with the Roman Catholics, they believe in something called transubstantiation. You take the bread and the cup, they turn into the actual body and blood of Christ, though they look the same, but they turn into that really. They take it and they say, um, we are being infused with grace. And with that grace, with the help of that grace, we can do good works that we can then offer to God along with Christ's help and some other sacraments, and on that basis be declared righteous. So that's man plus God, we would look and say, no, that is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we're saved. I'll just read you a couple of things that, um, that comment on that. This is John 6. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. This is too long to read, but, I'm gonna, but you could look at Hebrews 10 starting in verse 8. But I'm going to read you the last little bit. This is verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I'll put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, and I will write them, and on their mind I will write them. And their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's the real difference. Sometimes people will say Protestants and Catholics differ over what they call transubstantiation. It's really the infusion of grace and the presentation of works as the basis for being declared righteous. This is why if you, go, if you believe as we do and you go to a Catholic church, you, you can go there for a wedding or a funeral or something, but don't take Mass. Don't take Mass, because what they're proclaiming, you probably don't believe. And they probably wouldn't want you to take it, given what you do believe. So that's a, that's a thing I thought was worth noting, because there is a, there's an ecumenical spirit that sometimes leads us into bad places. It is a finished work we proclaim. So, in closing, um, we covered some key things. What are we physically doing each Sunday? Where did we get it in the Bible? Three accounts in the synoptics, one in 1 Corinthians. Important to remember. Three in the synoptics, one in 1 Corinthians. And some key things to remember. It's tied to Passover. It was instituted at a Passover. There's good reasons that we take it every week. It is offensive to the unbeliever. Hey, that's offensive. There's no doubt, no doubt about it. How does it unite us? What does Jesus say about it uniting us? And how does it tell of Christ's finished work? There no longer remains any sacrifice.
It's done. It's a finished work. Now all that remains is to ask each of you. God has done this great thing. Communion tells the story, tells the story of the greatest price ever paid and the hardest work ever done and the greatest love ever shown. I want to ask this. Is all that payment work and love for you? Remember, in our text, Luke 22, Jesus said he will not take this Passover again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's not going to simply restart at his return. It's going to be fulfilled. We partake of a remembrance every week, still looking forward to the complete fulfillment when we will eat together as the bride of Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.7. Check that out. So will you be there eating that supper or not? There's only one way to be there, and that is to trust in the Son of God who gave his life for you. He took upon flesh, and he went to the cross, and he shed his blood for you. If you will come to him, put your faith in him as your substitute, you will have eternal life. You will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb when this symbol is fulfilled. And that's it. And that's it for our lives. That's it for our friend Charlene. There at the marriage supper of the Lamb because she trusted in him. Let us trust in him in that same way. And let's run the race and finish and then go to this marriage supper because of him and what he did in his finished work. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are very good to send your Son and to give us your word so we know what you're doing. It's a revealed faith, Lord. It's not just something we made up, but you showed us, you bore it out in history, and he was raised and seen by many witnesses, as we remember Tom just preaching on. Lord, what a reliable and trustworthy testimony we have, Father, and how beautiful and wonderful you are to have moved in our hearts so that we would believe it. There are any here in the sound of my voice today that do not know him as their Savior, as he's revealed himself to be, that do not know their sinners and in need of a Savior, Father, I pray you would move in those hearts, Lord, that you would open them, that you would give them life, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand, that they might value the beauty of Jesus and have him as their own Savior, Father. He stands ready, Lord. Move in the hearts of men so that they come. We ask in Christ's name, amen.